1974, Toby Hooper and Kim Henkel's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre shocked the world with its family of cannibalistic killers lurking in rural Texas. A few years later, in 1977, horror legend Wes Craven released The Hills Have Eyes, a film about a brutal struggle between a suburban family and a mutant cannibal clan in the Nevada desert. This was only three years before Jack Ketchum released Off Season, a controversial book about a group of New York yuppies falling prey to cave-dwelling cannibals in Maine. It's a story we've heard a thousand times, and we're likely to hear it a thousand times more. Bad things happen to people who stray from the path and venture into the untamed wilderness. There's something about these places that turns humans into animals, predator and prey. Those who eat, and those who are eaten. It feels like an idea as old as time, but if this show has taught you anything, it's that every horror story needs to start somewhere. Welcome to the legend of the Sawney Bean Clan, a group of infamous cannibals and history's most terrifying family. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. True crime has always been popular. Even back in the 1800s, the citizens of foggy old London looked forward to the latest issue of the Newgate Calendar, a publication printed by the local Newgate prison. The calendar detailed the crimes and executions of notorious criminals, sparing none of the grisly details in the process. In fact, the magazine was so gory and salacious that it came with the subtitle The Malefactor's Bloody Register. Fans of the Newgate calendar were no strangers to murder, torture, beheadings, and slaughters. But one day, a story that hit the calendar's pages rocked the readers to their core. The tale of the Sawney Bean Clan. The headline read, An incredible monster who, with his wife, lived by murder and cannibalism in a cave. Executed at Leith with his whole family in the reign of James I. This was a period of London's history so brimming with violence that Jack the Ripper would soon hit the scene. But the details of the story still left people shocked and appalled. The Bean Clan's crimes were sickening. It seemed almost unthinkable that a group of human beings could commit these atrocities. After hearing the tale, the readers of the Newgate Calendar were haunted by one morbid question. How could a man and his family turn into monsters like this? And to have any hope of answering that question, we need to go back to the beginning. According to most accounts, Sawney, born Alexander Bean, grew up in the Scottish county of East Lothian sometime in the late 1500s. His home county was fewer than 10 miles east of Edinburgh, Scotland's capital city, but it was still relatively rural. King James VI was reigning over Scotland at the time while Queen Elizabeth I ruled in England. This won't be the last time King James turns up in the story, either. Sawney had humble beginnings. His parents were manual laborers, though opinions differ on whether they were ditch diggers, tanners, or hedgers. While he would later become synonymous with murder and cannibalism, young Sawney's greatest crime was laziness. His parents, being hardworking folk of the land, tried to train him on their trade, but Sawney wasn't interested. No matter what he encountered in life, he always wanted to take the easy way out. As he grew up, like most budding serial killers, he began displaying violent tendencies. He also enjoyed committing petty crimes like robbery and theft to make ends meet. Sonny discovered he could make more in an afternoon of robbing than in a month of honest work, 
so why resign himself to backbreaking labor on the fields? Young Sonny had all the talents of a world-class cut purse, and he intended to put those talents to good use. Much to the dismay of his parents, Sonny continued down his depraved path, becoming an increasingly dangerous man. But now he had a different kind of problem on his hands. He was getting lonely. After all, what's the point in having all the stolen riches in the world if you've got nobody to spend them with? But Sonny couldn't settle down with just anyone. He needed a bride who understood his passions and was capable of being every bit as ruthless and violent as him. And lucky for Sonny, he found his perfect match. Enter Agnes Douglas, nicknamed Black Agnes by her fellow villagers when they started accusing her of witchcraft. Her nickname is eerily similar to Black Annis, a child-eating witch from English folklore. And according to her neighbors, she was just as nasty as the name suggests. This reputation would turn most potential suitors away, but of course, Sonny was smitten. He and Black Agnes would soon be married, Mr. and Mrs. Bean, the power couple from hell. They decided to ditch their parents and elope further into the Scottish countryside where their joint criminal career would finally begin. With the power of two, they became even more efficient bandits. Black Agnes could lure in travelers along the lonely Scottish backroads, convincing them that she was in need of help. When the travelers dismounted their horses to assist her, Agnes would draw a dagger while her murderous hubby emerged from the bushes. The couple would ruthlessly butcher their victims before robbing them of all they were worth, employing the old pirate maxim, dead men tell no tales. However, while the dead can't scream, they can certainly whisper. Even in the days before modern forensics, a huge influx of people going missing on the Scottish backroads caused rumors to spiral. And as suspicion rose, it became less practical for Sonny and Black Agnes to waltz into a local township and buy dinner with their ill-gotten gains. But as we all know, the couples that slay together stay together, and this dangerous duo certainly weren't going to let police scrutiny ruin their good time. They'd simply keep their activities to the wilderness where they could murder their victims, then disappear without a trace just as quickly. However, there was still one pressing issue, food. They could rob as many travelers as they like, but if local villages and towns were a no-go, well, then all the coins and fine jewelry in the world were useless. Thankfully for them, an easy solution presented itself. Because while Sonny may have been on the lazy side in his youth, he certainly wasn't wasteful. If they were killing their marks anyway, surely it just made sense to put every part of the murdered wayward traveler to good use, right? This is how Sonny Bean and Black Agnes became cannibals. In addition to the clothes and possessions of their victims, they also started taking the best cuts of flesh, which they would then cook and consume that evening to celebrate a successful day of robbing and killing. It solved their most pressing issue. They wouldn't be starving anytime soon. But every new situation created different problems for these fine young cannibals. If they needed to kill every time they needed to eat, it would result in a truly absurd number of victims. And what's more, they needed shelter somewhere to lay their heads at night after committing their daily murders. But, considering the rap sheet they were building, they couldn't expect to buy a few nights in a comfy local inn with their stolen money. They'd need to make themselves something a little more permanent, where they could avoid the prying eyes of the Scottish authorities. The search for refuge led them to the creepiest place imaginable, a huge coastal cave system over 180 meters deep cut into the cliff face of Benane Head. 
Not only was the cave deep and dark enough to give them plenty of space, it also had a unique feature for keeping away unwanted guests. Whenever the tide was in, the cave mouth was underwater, preventing anyone from getting inside. It was a built-in, natural security system, perfect for the needs of Scotland's cannibalistic Bonnie and Clyde. The cave also helped solve the food issue. One of the biggest problems of a largely carnivorous diet is that meat has a tendency to rot. However, with a fixed base of operations, Sawney and Black Agnes were able to start salting and pickling the flesh of their victims, allowing the meat they gathered to last for longer and also letting them take more meat from each individual victim. The cave soon became a cannibal larder, giving the bean couple everything they needed to survive and continue their rampage. Sawney and Black Agnes continued robbing and killing travelers, dragging their bodies back to the cave to dismember and preserve. To the rest of polite society in Scotland, these murders didn't even seem like murders, just disappearances. Even now, in the earliest days of their operations, the crimes of the Bean Couple were taking on an almost mythic quality. Nobody knew who they were or what they were doing. All they knew is that those who chose to travel along the back roads may drop off the face of the earth and never be seen again. They were the chill down the spine of every lone traveler, the ghost story told at night around the crackling hearths of local inns. There be monsters on those dark, lonely roads. Meanwhile, Sawney and Black Agnes couldn't be happier. They were a loving couple with a nice home and a fulfilling shared career. But they couldn't shake the feeling that something was missing. The patter of little cannibal feet along the slimy rocks of Banane Head Cave. More hands to hold knives and skin carcasses. More eyes to watch from the dark. It was time for the beans to get busy. Up next, we get to see the full Sawney Bean clan in action, their terrible crimes, and the way that their 25-year reign of terror was finally brought to an equally violent end. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. A Scottish peasant, after completing a long day toiling in the fields, decided to take a walk down his local beach to clear his head and breathe in some of that healthy seaside air. During his walk, he saw the waves wash something up onto the beach. At first, from its gnarled shape and blackened texture, he assumed it was just a chunk of driftwood. But as he got closer, he realized that he couldn't be further from the truth. It was a human arm largely stripped of skin and flesh, and charred, as though it had been recently set on fire. He was horrified by the sight of it. Could it be the remains of some terrible tragedy at sea? He decided to run to the magistrate of his town and tell him about it immediately. However, as he was telling the story, he noticed the magistrate's face began to pale. The magistrate would never tell the peasant, for fear of creating panic. But this was the fourth limb that had washed up on the beach this week and all four of the limbs had been arms, so at least two people had been killed already. He had been the magistrate of this small town for ten years, and in that time, he'd never seen anything like this. But little did the magistrate know, the horrors were only just beginning. In the woods near the community of Bellantray, a small group of merchants and traders were heading out of town to transport their goods. It was a route they'd all taken so many times before, so none of them had any reason to feel on edge but they'd been hearing rumors as of late. 
People had been going missing in far greater numbers than ever before. And elsewhere in Scotland? Grizzly carcasses, or, well, at least parts of them, were washing up along the coasts. In times such as these, it would be wise to exercise a little extra caution. But they pressed on, despite their fears, unaware of all the eyes watching them from the woods, waiting for them to get deep enough into the thicket that the nearby village wouldn't hear their screams. The traitor at the head of the convoy raised a hand, ordering the others behind him to stop. There was a tiny figure in the path, maybe 15 feet in front of them, huddled and dressed in rags. The lead trader dismounted his horse and approached cautiously to investigate the situation. Just as he suspected, it was a child sitting alone on the road. A boy, pale and filthy with messy hair and long fingernails, almost like an animal's claws. The trader's empathy pushed him forwards, worrying for the poor boy's safety, not knowing that the little boy would not be returning the favor. By the time he was close enough to see the boy drawing a blade out of his ragged coat, it was already too late. Almost as though the forest came alive around them, men, women, and children suddenly emerged from the bushes and the trees. They wielded knives, clubs, axes, sickles, swords, and even stolen pistols, all dressed in mismashes of stolen, often bloodstained clothes, dirty teeth, and hungry eyes. Wild men, feral women, and demonic little kids. They shrieked and roared like animals as they descended on the hapless traitors, who were, exactly as their attackers intended, paralyzed by fear. A figure stood amongst the trees and watched. He was no longer just a lazy little boy with a violent streak. He was a large, strapping adult with a wild beard and unkempt hair, watching with a grin while his brood tore apart another group of unfortunate travelers. This was the terrible man that little Sonny Bean had grown into. And more than that, he was a family man now. With their superior numbers and unparalleled brutality, the Sawney Bean clan made short work of their victims. They were beaten, stuck like pigs with blade after blade and hacked to pieces in a frenzy. The beans would take clothes, weapons, and valuables before dragging the corpses back to the Benane Head Cave for butchery. Now, at the height of their power, the Bean clan were 48 members strong. There were Sawney and Black Agnes, six daughters, eight sons, 14 granddaughters, and 18 grandsons, though accounts of exact numbers differ. Because of their secluded nature, no members of the Sawney Bean clan ever interacted with anyone from outside the family, unless, of course, they were killing them. The family's many grandchildren were the product of incest between Sawney and Black Agnes's children. Because if you're already breaking one law of nature, why not go for broke? All of these children were brought up learning their mother and father's terrible ways, becoming consummate killers and cannibals from incredibly young ages. Legend has it that one of Sonny Bean's daughters was able to escape the thrall of the Bean clan and enter normal society, living in the nearby small town of Girvan, where she tried to put her family's terrible past behind her. But, as we'll find out later, leaving your past behind can sometimes be harder than you think. Sonny Bean had turned his own new family into a kind of murderous army. They would conduct missions together, ambushing hapless travelers, massacring them, and taking their valuables and bodies back to Benane Cave to be repurposed. The interior of the cave looked like something out of a nightmare now. The slimy floor was littered with human bones, often covered in teeth marks. Strips of salted human meat were hung from the walls, while barrels of pickled flesh were stacked up along the back of the cave. The Bean Clan had learned to adjust their eyes to the darkness around them, 
almost as though, through their many crimes, they'd given up their humanity, piece by piece. However, despite the savage nature of their attacks, the Sawney Bean Clan were actually incredibly careful and meticulous in their methods. Because the tide was in during the day, the Bean Clan remained dormant, waiting for nightfall to strike, where they also had the advantage, thanks to their ability to see in the dark. These nighttime attacks, always staged in remote locations, prevented them from being seen by any incidental witnesses. And much like the early days, they never left a single survivor. After taking all the valuable items and flesh from their victims, they would take the remains and cast them into the sea, knowing the tide would carry them off and deposit them at other coasts around the country. This both confused the authorities about the family's location while also making it seem like the victims were killed by animals. The Bean Clan were so discreet in their actions that nobody ever suspected they were living nearby over the 25-year period they operated. However, despite how good the Bean Clan were at covering their tracks, there was no hiding just how many people were going missing. The final count for how many people the Beans murdered was somewhere between 1 and 5,000 people, dwarfing even the combined total of victims of the top 100 most prolific North American serial killers. People were losing friends, family members, and neighbors to the Bean Clan with shocking frequency. It was impossible for this many people to fall off the map without authorities starting to pay attention, especially as these disappearances soon caused a public outcry among the frightened local population. Who would be next? The King needed to put a stop to this before there was nobody left. But some of the incredibly poor decisions made by the Scottish authorities in their search for the Bean Clan would have dire consequences for the innocents caught in the middle. Initially, the Scottish Crown sent spies into the areas where disappearances seemed to be most common. As you can probably expect, these spies either came back with no useful information, or they didn't come back at all. Their flesh lay dried or pickled in the Benane Head Cave. Of course, this only served to escalate the situation as the Crown sent an increasing number of investigators and footmen into the area, all eager to find some people to blame and punish for the Bean Clan's crime, even if they weren't the actual culprits. This began a streak of violent deaths that, even though the Bean Clan weren't directly responsible for committing, the paranoia and fear they created still had a hand in causing. It began with the rounding up of local petty criminals. Anyone seen committing even a minor crime was suspected of being involved in the disappearances, often beaten or intimidated into confessing these crimes, and then similarly hanged for them. And yet, the disappearances kept happening. Groups of the King's footmen even began to disappear, ambushed and slaughtered in the night by the Bean Clan. In their last, terrified moments, their weapons and training meant nothing. They probably thought they were being set upon by demons or evil spirits in the forest not just mere human beings. The authorities kept pointing their paranoid fingers at the wrong people. When they ran out of petty criminals to hang and the disappearances persisted, they instead turned their scrutiny to the local innkeepers. It only made sense. There were plenty of inns across the routes where all of these people were going missing. Maybe they were being murdered and robbed by the people they were paying for room and board. It certainly wasn't unheard of. Sadly, this line of thought spelled death for a number of innocent Scottish innkeepers. The authorities were infuriated by the crimes and their inability to solve them. At this point, they were just as motivated by revenge as they were by any sense of justice. In an act of brutality that the Bean Clan themselves would probably be proud of, several innkeepers were beaten and then executed by the authorities for crimes they didn't commit. It was a bloodbath, and things were only going to get worse from here. Afraid and enraged by the crimes of the Bean Clan and the failure of the authorities, 
local people attempted to enact a little mob justice. And like all attempts at mob justice, the results were both horrific and ineffective. Innocent people were lynched for the crimes of the Bean Clan as decades of fear and paranoia found their expression in physical violence. These searches found nothing productive. According to local legends, a villager in one of these mobs even commented on Benane Head Cave as a point of suspicion. The rest of the mob found this idea ridiculous. After all, what kind of human being would ever want to spend time in a dismal seaside cave like that? While the townspeople and authorities desperately fumbled, killing off all the wrong people, the Sawney Bean Clan carried on their killings unimpended. Sawney, Black Agnes, and their unnatural brood ate well from the flesh of their many victims, confident in the fact that the people up above would never catch them. They were just too good at what they did. So good, in fact, that it started to have a noticeable effect on the surrounding area. The persecution of innkeepers in the nearby townships made many of the remaining ones pack up their bags and move elsewhere. Tales of the countless disappearing travelers caused trade to dry up in the area, seeing as nobody wanted to risk falling off the map themselves. A mere 48 people were sucking the life out of an entire area with their terrible crimes, and it seemed like nobody was going to put a stop to it. The Sawney Bean Clan's reign of terror might even go on for generations, long after Sawney himself was in the ground. Or at least, that's what might have happened if it wasn't for one chance encounter. An encounter that would turn the Sawney Bean Clan's luck around forever. It happened on the night of a nearby fair, one of the few times when the locals in the area could forget about all the disappearances and let their hair down a little. As the night darkened, a young married couple decided they'd had enough fun for the evening and took their leave on the back of a horse. Little did they know, the Sawney Bean Clan watched them from the darkness of the distant bushes, just waiting for them to get close enough to strike. It was a textbook scenario, the perfect setup for one of their ambushes. They weren't anticipating any surprises. When the horse carrying the married couple approached, the Bean Clan attacked, eager to claim another two victims. Tragically, the wife was killed in the initial panic. The horse reared up from the shock of the approaching crowd and she was thrown from its back. Several women from the Bean family attacked her, allegedly cutting her throat and drinking her blood while disemboweling her. The husband, horrified by seeing what had just happened to his wife, was then dragged from the horse. Another pair of easy prey for the Sawney Bean clan. Or so they thought, until the husband revealed two things. First, that he had extensive combat experience, likely from a military background. Second, that he wasn't going to let his wife's death go unavenged. He pulled out the pistol and sword he was carrying and began fighting the scores of vicious cannibals around him, somehow managing to hold them at bay single-handedly. Perhaps decades of success had made them soft, but none of them could ever remember one of their victims fighting back like this. It was unprecedented. The sounds of the fight were loud enough to alert the attendants of the fair, Immediately, a group of 30 men took up arms and ran in the direction of the commotion. The sight of such a force scared away the Sawney Bean Clan, who fled back into the forest in the direction of Benane Head. For the first time in their 25-year-long criminal career, they'd let a victim live, and they were all about to pay the ultimate price for this oversight. The men from the fair rescued the grieving husband, who was insanely lucky to have survived his attack and took him to a local doctor. There, he told them about what had happened, about a gang of vicious cannibals who'd come out of the forest and attacked them, taking the life of his bride. The men were appalled by the story and immediately took it to the local magistrate. It seemed as though they'd finally discovered what was causing the disappearances over all these years, 
though the truth was so horrible they could hardly believe it. All their friends, family members, and neighbors had been eaten. Given the salacious nature of the news, it didn't take long for it to reach King James himself over in Glasgow. The formless monster he'd been hunting for years finally had a face. Well, over forty of them, technically. So many had died because of the Sawney Bean Clan, and now he would personally see to it that every single one of them would be put to death. He gathered up a force of his best men, four hundred strong, that he would lead all the way to Benane Head Cave. There, the Sawney Bean Clan would have their last stand. In the legends of Sawney Bean, the final confrontation typically plays out in one of two different ways. In the less popular version of the myth, when King James and his men finally discovered the Benane Head Cave, they placed gunpowder barrels at the mouth of the cave and set them alight. The resulting fumes flooded the cave and suffocated the Sawney Bean family inside, ending their reign of terror at long last. However, the more popular version of the tale doesn't let the Bean clan off so easily. King James and his hunting party used bloodhounds to seek out the cave mouth before sending the vicious dogs inside, followed by his best-trained and armed men. While they were horrified by the sight of the cave's gruesome interior, they overwhelmed the Bean clan with little effort, thanks to their superior numbers, equipment, and tactics. The family was dragged, one by one, out of the Benane Head Cave and taken, in varying accounts, to either Tollbooth Jail in Edinburgh, Glasgow, or Leith to face their ultimate punishment. Because the Sawney Bean clan were seen by their captors as less than human, they were not afforded the human liberty of a fair trial. Instead, their captors began executing them with extreme prejudice. While the exact details of the mutilation differ between accounts, it's generally accepted that Sawney himself, along with all the men in the family, were castrated, had their hands and feet cut off, and were set on fire while the women of the family watched. The women were then burned alive, including Black Agnes herself, and even Sawney's daughter who escaped to live in Girvan, whose identity was revealed by her angry neighbors after the nature of the Sawney Bean clan finally came to light. And with that, their terrifying family was finally wiped off the map. As Sawney died, he screamed the chilling last words, It isn't over. It will never be over. And in a sense, he was right. There are too many pieces of media influenced by the Sawney Bean clan to even mention them all here. From 1999's Ravenous to the Wrong Turn series of the 2000s and 2010s, to nods and manga and anime like Attack on Titan, and even the 1998 death metal album Inbreeding the Anthropophagy by Deeds of Flesh. Critics of the legend have pointed to mentions of Bean in early British publications, intended to demonize the Scottish people as brutish or violent. It's even been said that the term Sawney has historically been used to refer to a stereotypically aggressive Scottish person. Similarities have also been cited to a pre-existing but more obscure Scottish legend, that of Christy Cleek, a Perth-based butcher who allegedly turned to cannibalism during a famine. But even though the legend undeniably has some anti-Scottish roots, it's become a boon for Edinburgh's tourist industry. With dark mythology fans from all over the world visiting Benane Head even today to see the cave where it all supposedly happened. Many Scottish people in the modern day probably remember being told the terrifying tale in their youth and felt a chill creep down their spine the next time they walked a back road through the woods alone. It goes without saying that the legend of the Sawney Bean clan has cast a long and incredibly dark shadow over horror cinema and fiction. But in many ways, perhaps the adaption most faithful to the spirit of the original tale is still Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes. In this film, the cannibal clan, led by Papa Jupiter, feels abandoned by the systems that govern the United States of America. 
their frustration turns to violence against a seemingly normal suburban family who, in turn, retaliate with equally brutal violence. Much like the authorities and townspeople killing innocents in search of the Bean Clan, or the sadistic executions of the Bean Clan themselves at the hands of King James, killing begets killing in an endless cycle. Regardless of the factual nature of the Sawney Bean legend or any of the media it inspired, one thing seems to be true. When we venture out into the wilderness, we might not only encounter the animals living in others, but the primal violence hiding in our own hearts, too. Tonight's episode was written by Henry Galley. Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight, and all of our music was done by the incredible Danny Sweet. I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah, and our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska, and this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit www.insidious.show. <laughs>